Chapter 12, In and Out, in which the author explores colors and shades of meaning. This chapter is brought to you by the number 5 and the letter F. Writing this, I feel like Grover, the furry blue Muppet from Sesame Street, Elmo is a recent interloper, about to explain the meanings of commonly used prepositions to children, near and far, top and bottom, in and out. Really, though, this chapter is going to be about subtleties and empathy, or maybe you want to call it brotherly love, filius. My church culture rested heavily upon dichotomies, opposites, black and white. On Facebook a couple of years ago, someone from the same kind of background as me tried to correct my perhaps somewhat more nuanced thinking about things the Bible says. He did this by insisting that everything must come down to the Bible being something whose only function is to be obeyed, nothing else. An ethics manual. Every thought and idea had to be checked against scripture to judge it either entirely right or definitely wrong. So gambling, for instance, had to be wrong, according to scripture. It's so sad that so many Christians just aren't clear about gambling today, isn't it? Uh, what it says right here is actually a very odd thing for the Bible to say. I don't enjoy gambling much, but I'm not sure it's talking about gambling at all right here. I'm not sure what this bit is about. Makes one wonder how to connect this with what Isaiah says, too. Yeah, whatever. But the Bible still clearly says that gambling is wrong, right? It's so sad that so many Christians just aren't clear on this today, isn't it? I don't gamble myself, but I'm not sure it does clearly say that gambling is wrong outright, anywhere, in so many words. I think you're applying verses written about other topics. I think you can decide what you think God would want and apply whatever verses you want. What a complicated and winding path of faith you really do try to lead, dear brother. Anyways. Just talking to me, he could see that I was reading a lot more in there than just rules. That upset him. He really needed the Bible to plainly tell him what was wrong so he could then carefully not do that. And he badly needed it to not say anything else at all but those rules. No life, no love, no openness, no inspiration, no understanding, none of that. But I tended to see things how I did, and my Facebook statuses sometimes reflected that. So he suddenly blocked me on Facebook with a last message saying, If you are going to go right on Facebook and try to claim that there are gray areas in anything the Bible is saying, then I have no other choice left except to block you. See you in heaven, if you truly are the Lord's, which I highly doubt. The idea that maybe there were not only gray areas, but colors also seen in the Bible, seemed terrifying and quite beyond him. He desperately needed to protect his belief system from that kind of thing. Rules, structure, limits, that's what held his life together. That's what he thought God was made of. I grew up with nothing but black and white thinking. My church group wasn't even aware of how much it spoke and thought entirely in terms of us and them, in terms of among the gathered saints and those who are without or outside, the Lord's people versus the camp. Everything came down to the gathered saints versus merely professing Christendom. It came down to the meeting versus this wicked world and its churches. This was not a recipe for connecting with the rest of the Church of Christ, nor understanding and relating to other Christians. This is one reason why all of that is still so hard for me nowadays. I am unable to get excited about the stuff I'm supposed to, and I keep going on about stuff others don't see the worth in. Legalists, armed with a black and white rules and limits only application of the Bible, can be found lecturing people about marrying outside their race, about their clothing, grooming and deportment, their career and education choices, and any number of other things. They can also be found clawing their way up to positions of importance. They do love the preeminence and punishing people who think any differently from how they do. 
to give a bit of a sense of the high, thin, metallic, acrid tang of obsessive insanity audible when someone in the T.W. Brethren goes rogue with the scripture to enforce black and white legalism, I have included a bit of writing by Brother Paul Christianese, that's not a pseudonym, still available for purchase from Bible Truth Publishers, I believe, explaining why only men can divorce, and then only if their wife has cheated. Mr. Christianese explains how, therefore, the Gill Brethren, in allowing a woman to divorce her unfaithful husband and remarry, was clearly not somewhere anymore where the Lord was in the midst. No doubt Paul sees out there recommending cutting off hands and plucking out eyes today. On Matthew 19 by Paul Christianese. In 1930, a division occurred amongst the saints gathered together on the true ground of gathering, Tunbridge Wells, because a sister had divorced from her first husband for adultery and remarried with a brother in the assembly. All those who condoned this case of remarriage, quote Matthew 19.9, whoever shall put away his wife, not for fornication, and shall marry another, commits adultery. And they say that the Lord Jesus teaches here that the innocent party has the right to put away his or her partner that wronged him or her and to remarry. But when we read exactly what is written here, what is the real teaching of the Lord? In the Old Testament, the male has the right to put away his wife for all sorts of reasons. If she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some unseemly thing in her, Deuteronomy 24, 1. And the Pharisees come to ask to the Lord if he would recognize this Old Testament right for the male. In the Old Testament, the female had no right at all concerning divorce and remarriage, and these Jewish Pharisees would not even think of asking to the Lord if he would give some right to the female. And the Lord, in his answer, shows that indeed he gives an answer to the Pharisees on the rights of the male, because in verse 12 he speaks of eunuchs, and there are no female eunuchs. Matthew 19, 3 to 12 does not speak at all of the rights of the female, but only of the rights and duties of the male. For the male, in the Old Testament, there existed the letter of divorce. But for the male, in the New Testament, the Lord Jesus says, Whoever shall put away his wife, not for fornication, and shall marry another, commits adultery. And what can be applied to the male cannot be applied to the female. For these words, not for fornication, we will never read them when the New Testament speaks to the female. People have said that there is a contradiction between the words of the Lord Jesus and the words of the Apostle Paul because the Lord permits certain cases of remarriage and the Apostle Paul never does. But there is no contradiction. But the words of Christ and of the Apostles are complementary. The Lord speaks to the male and the Apostle speaks to the female. For the male, we read, not for fornication. To the female, we never read, not for fornication, but we read, for the married woman is bound by law. The husband being alive, she shall be called an adulteress if she be to another man. Romans 7, 2 and 3. Let not wife be separated from husband, but if also she shall have been separated, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. 1 Corinthians 7, verses 10 and 11. A wife is bound for whatever time her husband lives. But if the husband be fallen asleep, she is free to be married to whom she will, only in the Lord. 1 Corinthians 7 verse 39. When we have understood that there are two different words in the New Testament, one to the male and one to the female, then the other scriptures, like Mark and in Luke, become clear and simple too. The male has, according to scripture, the right to put away a wife that has committed fornication. The female has no right at all to divorce and remarry, even when her husband has been unfaithful. This makes that the case of Renton, that a woman put away her husband because of unfaithfulness, was unscriptural. The words not for fornication are not for the woman, but only for the men. And her remarriage was certainly adultery, according to Romans 7, 2, and 3, and to 1 Corinthians 7, verses 10 through 11. Making the TWs right again, because, you know... Matthew 19. To be positive, after a fashion, the demonstrated inability of brethren groups to stay strong and together and not split up over stupid stuff has made it harder nowadays for them to be proud. Of course, they can try to be proud of being the last men sitting in the meeting hall, but that's pretty thin victory as the decades roll on. Phil says, as to Kelly Lowe Continental Brethren in the UK, that even though they keep right on having divisions, the starch has mostly gone out of them. 
divisions just aren't as fun anymore. In the Kelly Low Glanton squadron, people didn't get shunned. I left in the mid-1980s. People were obviously sorry, but no shunning. I still go to brethren funerals of notable figures from my early years, and everyone's glad to see me and the other folks from the old days. But the KLGs in the UK have lost most of their bite. The majority are just carrying on in their friendly, supportive local groups, for which there is much to be said, with no expectation or hunger to survive. Parodying Benjamin Disraeli at the end there, Phil says, The whole group exploded in the 1990s over an issue related to eternal sonship, a doctrine they all agree on, but about which they managed to fall out. And once happy clusters of meetings have now broken fellowship with each other. The point at issue was quite abstruse, and like the Schleswig-Holstein question, was really only understood by about three people, one of whom's dead, one has gone mad, and the third has forgotten what it was. Reworking my understanding of purity. Raised as I was, you kept out the stuff other churches were doing and saying so as not to catch their lazy, sloppy, dubious habits and doctrine. And you kept out of this world so as not to catch all that sensual, self-indulgent, self-pleasing, God-dishonoring evil. This is why, as a teenager, I didn't go to movies or have a VCR in my house or look at pornography or swear or drink alcohol outside of the Sunday morning service, nor generally make friends with this world. I didn't want to take the wrong side. I didn't want to betray God. The thing is, Cain didn't have a television. He didn't listen to Judas Priest either. Now, where exactly did Cain's urge to murder come from, if not from watching Game of Thrones or playing Call of Duty? The Bible seems to present pretty clearly that evil comes into the world through the human heart rather than the other way around. Jesus says it's not what goes into you, your mouth, your eyes, your ears, so much as what comes out of you, words and actions, that defiles you. The rottenness is within. We are imperfect. We have perverse urges to cheat, to lie, to manipulate, to bully, to steal, because doing things right can be very scary. We know very well that the real thing to do is to speak truth, to deal with other human beings without resorting to bullying, lying, or manipulating, and to acquire things honestly. Scheming, lying, and cheating invalidate and corrupt the whole endeavor. We know this. But back in the day, parents were worried that if their innocent little kids saw the roadrunner drop a piano on Wiley e. Coyote, that their kids would laugh because the cartoon had put into their previously pristine little hearts a brand new, morbidly learned, unnatural delight in the misfortunes of others. Just like nowadays, parents are worried their kids might want to worship Satan and do magic if they watch movies about Harry Potter instead of good old Gandalf and Aslan. But back in the day, there were a lot of magazine articles, Christian and otherwise, about the corrupting influence of Wile E. Coyote, rock music, and action movies. This is still a big debate. Let's take the piano-dropping Roadrunner again. Are the kids laughing because the horrible thing hasn't really happened? And not to them, but only in a hugely exaggerated way to a purely fictional cartoon character? So they're imagining how much it would suck if it really happened and feeling almost a relief about this lucky escape? That they've lived thus far without any pianos falling on them? That the world being depicted is cartoonish, exaggerated, and unrealistic? Or... Are they laughing because it's so well-timed and unexpected? Because in the context of the story, it's perfectly set up, yet still surprising, still absurd. Or are they laughing because it is deeply human to laugh when others get hurt, and those kids came with that built into them, and this cartoon was designed to depict something that would resonate with little human beings in their natural state? Or is laughter like tears, a way of venting the energy conjured by a sudden emotional reaction to unexpected things. I felt back in the day like we were getting mixed signals as Christian kids. We were taught that each human being was born with the capacity to do the very worst kinds of sins built right into us. We were told over and over again how we needed to read the Bible, pray, go to the meetings, and failing all of that, trust God, or else we would instantly become the very worst kinds of sinners, regular, worldly children. Old brethren, men and women who'd never seen a television show or drank a glass of wine would go on and on about how if they let slip just once, they could just feel how they'd all too soon become a goat-raping serial killer who loved television. Well, perhaps people like old Mrs. Smith didn't word it quite like that, 
But the implications and what they said were, I thought, clear to all of us. Man, would they sin without the meeting lifestyle, peer pressure, and rules holding them in check. Sin management, because we were all horrible people inside, deep down. But then they'd kind of turn around and speak of the depravity of this world and how seductive it was and deceitful and how we needed to keep well clear of all the fun things it had on offer to keep ourselves clean from it. Wait, we were clean now? I was a weird child. So one weekend on holiday at my uncle's house in Mississauga, I read The Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan and its sequel. They were predictably Puritan, though I didn't know what that meant at the time, depicting the world as a place filled with tempting cities and bad company one could fall into, a just-say-no theology, subtractive virtue. But there was this one part that gave me new thoughts, thoughts that hadn't ever come up at meeting. The allegorical Christians in Bunyan's book are given white robes, and when they are going on their journey, people throw dirt on them, and it magically slides off and doesn't defile their white robes, like, at all. What? I thought. They were walking through the world, and once they got spiritual enough or were on a path of growth and progressing toward God, it wasn't about locking themselves away from this world. And as they walked right through it, they didn't have to worry about getting defiled so much anymore? It wasn't their primary preoccupation to keep their skirts clean? Now it was actually about where they were headed in their self-cleansing robes? And then I noticed that in the Old Testament, there wasn't any shame tied into all those ritualistic washings. If you carried the remains of a dead family member to their grave, if you defecated, if you menstruated, if you ejaculated, if you gave birth, if you did any number of quite normal proper things, you had to wash yourself and undergo ritualistic cleansing afterward. You were unclean, often until the evening. But you weren't ashamed. You just washed and waited. Those Old Testament folk were pragmatic people. You worked and lived your life, and if you did certain things, you needed to wash before shaking other people's hands, hugging them, sitting at table with them, and passing around food. It was not, for them, a shame thing. It was just a life thing. And in the New Testament, Jesus didn't teach his disciples not to walk around Judea because it would make their feet dirty. He walked everywhere and wanted his feet washed when he arrived at your house. So this, too, was something I started to learn in my 20s. Life defiles us. Anyone who's cleaned up after a rugby game, sexual encounter, or childbirth can tell you that the more full of life an act is, the more likely there is to be perhaps a certain amount of pain in with the joy and perhaps a huge mess. And there is really no place for shame in it. Shame is always divisive. It doesn't help in making connections. It isn't inspiring. Life involves getting your hands and other parts of you dirty. And then we have soap and water. I began to realize that as a kid, my parents hadn't actually been primarily concerned that watching the Dukes of Hazard would dirty or wound my soul. They spoke this way, but that's not what was really going on. It wasn't that it would be bad for me inside at all. It seems it was more about the risk that my enjoying that television activity might make me look normal and usual, making it impossible for onlookers to tell that I was in that inner circle of correct saints, making it impossible for me to be a good testimony. Because if a random person laid eyes on me sitting there delighting in the improbable feats of an orange 1967 Dodge Charger, how would they even know I was a Christian? At school, the other kids were going to ask, did you see the A-team last night? If I had said, yeah, how would they have even known I was a Christian? If I dressed, combed my hair, or spoke or moved like the people on television, if I loved the things the people in this world loved, how exactly would I be different? What if the rapture happened right when I was watching TV? What a dishonor to the Lord. Well, as I said, as a child, I was always much more worried that the rapture would happen while I was on the toilet, whooshed up to the sky to meet Jesus, still squatting awkwardly with my pants down. But TV would have been pretty bad. In my assembly, they often quoted the verse about how the Israelites were to be a peculiar people. So we were to be peculiar too, peculiarly disengaged from joy and all joyful pursuits. If the world did something fun, we had to go to meeting instead. I got a clear message that being a Christian 
wasn't about being given something from God. It was about us giving things up for God. It wasn't really that I had something the other children were supposed to see and want for themselves. Not really. I was raised mainly to not have what everyone else had. In theory, the idea was that all of the prayer and Bible reading and going to meetings was supposed to pretty much fill the time I would otherwise have spent doing fun things, and that I'd not even want television and movies and music if I had these Christian things instead. But that didn't work. Proof positive that I was carnal and sold under sin, loving the things of this world. In my 20s, I found I was filling my weeks up with less and less meeting so I had to come up with what a pure, wholesome, good, fulfilling, edifying, useful life might look like, even without that demanding meeting timetable. The method behind all the life advice, behind the required brethren lifestyle, really seems to boil down to this. Guard your heart. Close it tight. Keep out the other churches. Keep out the other Christians. Keep out all the fun things in this world. Keep yourself clean, and keep your brethren indoctrination and status safe. Cherish your meeting peculiarity. Never stoop to trying to pass for usual. But many of us, raised according to this plan, had found that the meeting hurt many of us rather than keeping us safe. Despite being in, with this world locked out, we Christians brought all manner of corrupting and damaging crap into the meeting settings. And we got it from within our hearts. Some of it we invented ourselves, finding ways to hurt and cheat and sin without breaking any of the rules, really. Christians did not, as promised, consistently show each other forgiveness, grace, and mercy in a special Christian way that the children of darkness in this world would know nothing about. There are evil things, dirty things, hurtful and twisted things that don't require television. Satan wasn't only active at rock concerts and while people played Dungeons and Dragons. He was very active among us in our brethren culture. We had suicides in the TW Brethren group I was part of. In the broad circle of people we knew from other TW assemblies, we knew of incest and rape. We had child molesters who were tyrants in their local assemblies for decades. We had aborted incest babies. We had insanity. We had stalkers and pedophiles. We even had murder. I spent a fair bit of time at Bible conferences, in fact, hanging out with someone who later went on to murder his sister in their kitchen on Lord's Day. And the idea that these kinds of sins went along with a carelessness of lifestyle and association with this world and a lack of attendance at meeting or interest in the things of the Lord wasn't the case. Zealous people sin too, zealously. In fact, all too frequently, one finds sexual abusers being characterized by black and white thinking coupled with legalistic position-taking and power-seeking. A real zeal to punish people who do different sins than they do. So I was trying to come up with better ideas as to what pure actually looked like. Having rules didn't seem to fix us inside. What did it mean to let Jesus in? Was that different from following the rules? This all took some thinking. The Parable of the Church Lock-In One time I wrote a pretty nasty parable to try to convey the futility of trying to shut the problems out when they're in there with us. It was the story of a small church which decides that this world is so defiling, dangerous, and dirty that it is going to lock all of its ten families inside the building forever. Shut away in there, they feel they will be guaranteed to escape all the danger and all the filth and evil of the world. And so those ten families go ahead and do just this. They get people to board up the church building with them safely inside. Thirty years later, some neighbors eventually complain about the smell, and firemen break down the doors which have remained nailed shut for the three decades. Inside, there is only one person, looking like Jabba the Hutt. It is an enormously fat Christian man, sitting naked and alone atop a pile of rotten bones. The remains of scores of inbred children, of whom he is father, uncle, and brother. He is filthy, and he stinks, and yet he has never been outside the room, because he was born in there. Where did he learn to be like this? Not a very subtle point, but I believe a hard one lesson after being raised how I was. This us-and-them black-and-white thinking thing has a real downside. In fact, the whole them-outside and us-inside thing really led us church folk astray. 
Roger Waters, in writing Us and Them on Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon album, was already thinking along these lines in the mid-70s. You can't feel empathy for someone without thinking of them as being someone like yourself. Conversely, if you are going to enslave or otherwise deny a whole race any human rights at all, you have to view these people entirely as not us, as something entirely other. In every Brethren division, people simply narrowed the scope of who was considered us by deciding that some of our number had become them now. It's like any other kind of divorce. We and us turn into me and you. The Bible repeatedly says Christians are to love one another, almost like it's the main point of being down here on earth or something, or like we can't get by or achieve anything without dealing with one another in love. Almost as if treating each other without love is a worse testimony to the world even than watching Magnum P.I. or buying a six-pack at the beer store. And yet today, just like I saw back in my 20s, we really kind of live as if many other Christians simply aren't Christians at all, are dead, or never existed. We go on YouTube and talk about them and how they are preaching bad things or don't take a clear stand for or against certain political positions like we do and are therefore destined to become boils on Satan's backside for all eternity. YouTube videos purport to present clear evidence that Don Miller denies the existence of hell. Tom Wright is a Satanist. What hope is there for our sick Obama nation? The weird thing is that most Plymouth Brethren people know that our movement, as it ran in the 1800s, was meant to be an alternative to all that dividedness and that odd focus upon what church are you a member of. It wasn't supposed to be like a church at all. This is why the Sunday services at Brethren groups were scheduled so people could go to their own church and then meet with a Brethren group for breaking of bread also. These early Plymouth Brethren men and women looked at the churches around at the time and thought that the ornate buildings, the rigidly defined hierarchies of power, the bureaucracy, the way most men listened while only one or two taught, prayed, and preached, that all of this wasn't much like how they envisioned things being done in the New Testament. It is easily ascertained that the Brethren of the 1800s were routinely allowed to retain membership in and affiliation with Baptist and Presbyterian, Anglican, and many other churches, while still worshipping with the Brethren. They didn't have to choose it as their church, because it was determined not to be presented as just another church, so there were no membership lists. They didn't see themselves as a church, so they didn't conceive of kicking people out of it or commenting on who was a member of it, and therefore allowed to take communion, at first anyway. Now, I think a lot of Brethren people know this today. I think they know that these long-dead Brethren described exactly what we do as sectarian, by which they meant as wrong as all those churches, making your Brethren group just another church. So I think modern closed Brethren do what they do because they want to, because it's expedient and allows for control and retribution in many cases. Where there used to be no membership possible in a Plymouth Brethren group, now it's more stringent than in most churches. If you're us, you can break bread at an exclusive Brethren table like the ones I grew up with. But if you go to a Baptist church, too, or a different kind of Brethren table, that's it. Now you are them, meeting elsewhere, and no longer allowed to take communion with us. The Vineyard and Baptist and Free Methodist churches around here would certainly let me take communion if I wanted, as, I suspect, would many other churches I have less experience of. They'll accept me as us, at least on Sunday morning, when I'm a Christian who wants to take communion. This is less sectarian than my own brethren, supposedly sect-fighting culture of non-church. What happened with my own group over the last hundred years or so is a very sad story. It seemed so normal to me for so long, but my 20s was a time for starting to really see it as not only odd, but bad. Not just wrong, but downright harmful, a betrayal of what the very movement was set up to do. Maybe loving one another is about trying very hard to view lots of people as us. Maybe if you want to save people or talk to them about God, you have to be able to say and mean us. Maybe, instead of continually contrasting ourselves with other people, we need to try to genuinely make a connection, see similarities and commonalities. Maybe we have to listen as well as talk because we actually believe that we might learn something too 
from them, who we could view as us if we tried. For me, I had to get comfortable with the idea that in wasn't as safe and clean as it was advertised to be. That reeking jab of the hut figure on the top of the pile of the bones of the saints in my little parable was an ugly image, and I'd been all set to try to become him too once, a nasty game of musical chairs around the Lord's table. I'd been raised to it. I chose it myself too. I competed in that game. In my twenties, I was forced to re-examine all of that. It was very much a competitive kind of piety. And is there any place for who amongst us is greatest in Christian circles? And if it's allowed to worm its way in there, what are the spiritual consequences for that group? If the lump was getting leavened with the Pharisee evil, if there was anti-life in the pot with the porridge. So I went outside the camp and walked to and fro upon the earth and saw pain and defilement and confusion along with beauty, love, and insight. I saw life in bars with garage bands playing, in video rental stores, in corner stores, in Central Park, in pool halls, at science fiction and comic book conventions. Everywhere I went, I saw people. Some I could deal with, and some I couldn't. Some I wanted to judge awesome, and some I wanted to judge despicable, because I was raised with the feeling that judging was my job for some reason. But I worked on that. I tried to remember that there is a judge of all the earth, and that I am not he. I tried to remember that there is a time to judge, and that it isn't when the song isn't over, the painting isn't finished, or the cake's not been baked yet. So I went into various churches, just as I went into music venues. I thought of the people at meeting as us, because they were my people, my culture. But I increasingly thought of various other people outside meeting as us, too. I spoke to people who'd left the meeting, even though I was frantically warned not to speak to them lest I become like them. If you use him as your mentor, you'll end up right where he is one day. Might as well take rat poison as speak with levers. And increasingly, I saw that our meeting was just another human thing in our human world. It wasn't outside it at all. It was part of it. It wasn't immune to anything. I found I was most able to deal with people who were open to us being the same, meeting openness with openness. But if someone was a really shrilly zealous atheist, evangelical Christian, Scientologist, Mormon, or Satanist, normally I found I couldn't really even have a genuine conversation with them. They remained them, no matter what I did sometimes. They would not ever look at me as part of us, so we could make no us between us and they positively glowed and delighted in that black-and-white contrast. Science versus religion. Atheism versus all other worldviews. Us versus them. Certain people love that. How one way is right, and all other ways are not only very wrong, but really, really stupid and sad. And they ranted, said they couldn't understand how anyone could be different from them, bragged that they couldn't even imagine how other people could think and feel what they did, commented on how sad it was again, claimed to feel sorry for people who were less right than us. I have tried to be us with various entire church groups. It hasn't worked out. But when I try to have an us with just one or two other people, Christians or otherwise, we normally can do it just fine. We end up being a support for each other, making each other think, caring about each other's struggles, and sharing each other's joys. And sometimes we fight like family. But when I try to go into an officially established Christian anything at all, it's very different. When I try to join with any Christian thing which has already defined who is in and who is out and what is required in order to be us, it doesn't go well. Us. 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 Or them. Increasingly, I realize that, like it or not, in some ways the Plymouth Brethren are my us, and we've gotten rid of me and don't ever want me back. We reject me. In other ways, they were always them to me, and I was never us to them. The New Testament doesn't narrow us any narrower than all Christians, or when writing to Christians in specific continents or towns, all the Christians in that area. So I think maybe I'm not supposed to acknowledge any other way of looking at it. 
If a Christian I know is part of an us that I am not, we are still Christians. And that's more important than their membership list. So maybe I'll just ignore it. As a very human, made-up thing that doesn't work or do much of anything good that I'd be willing to bank on. I think that's how we Christians should deal. But we're not used to it. We're used to, they go to the Riverstone Bible Chapel now, so of course we don't see much of them anymore. Riverstone Bible Chapel being around the corner from our own house and two miles from our own church building, and having half of our ex-members, including blood relatives of ours, and a doctrine indistinguishable from our own. I think I'm supposed to hang out with people. I think I'm supposed to have coffee with them, play songs with them, eat with them, phone them, text them, email them, and Facebook them. But I've heard any number of people speak of these pursuits as wasting my time because presumably anything other than face-to-face, real-time, spent with one's own nuclear family and chosen sub-sub-subdivision of the Christians in our area is always a waste of time, isn't legitimate, not what God intends for Christians. Thing is, maybe what happens between people using electronics is real too. I've been to England, Texas, Maryland, Washington State, Maritime Canada, Alaska, Maine, Pennsylvania, and upstate New York to visit people who wouldn't agree that we've been wasting our time and not assembling together. I know geographically distant people with emotional struggles, family problems, money problems, alcoholism, relationship woes, and all kinds of real-life stuff, joy, pain, and mess. I think we need to be us. I sometimes say, You've talked to me. Now go talk to Martha or Jeremiah about it too and see what they say. So far, you've only got what I've said. See what the others have to add. I am often asked, I don't know them. What do they know? They won't understand a bit of it. And then I have to talk about how the not telling people stuff hurts us all by itself. How locking problems away allows them to really grow like mushrooms in the cellar. How AA says we're only as sick as our secrets. How the Bible says that two are better than one, for example, in the forest working or rock climbing or something. Because then, if one falls down and gets hurt, there's someone else there. There is an us. This is what I shoot for when I meet Christians who I presume believe in prayer. Life has, as I said the pain and problems and mess, so I assume they are troubled by some of that. I'm assuming they are being pushed towards growth, as I am, faster than they'd like. I'm assuming they're tempted to try to put the brakes on as to that. That's why, as I said, I so often offer to ask God for whatever they want me to ask him for. And I can't believe how often this is too intimate or too Christian or too real or too whatever for people. I think that's what an us is about, though. Most Christians I talk to don't have anything I can recognize as an us in their church group. Not really. No real honesty, openness, and connection. Not for too many years at a stretch, anyway. Melody writes, Our group did not socialize. We still rarely see each other outside church gatherings on Sundays and Wednesdays. Perhaps they get together without me? It's amazing to me. But people online often get all choked up about how real and honest and workable, the plastic discussions on the internet seem, by contrast to their church experience. They're overwhelmed. They've never experienced the like, they tell us, the us they find on an online forum or Facebook group, the warmth, the honesty. I'm ashamed that this is how well we Christians do at community. It's embarrassing. Why can't our groups do that in person half as well? I make sure I have an us. It's only a small one. My old meeting us doesn't want me and is no help for the most part. I am them to those guys. I feel that every time I walk in the door of a meeting hall or see them at the grocery store. So the us I have is mainly others originally from that same old meeting us who are all them nowadays as far as we, the meeting, are concerned. I'll connect with anyone I can, really. But it's hard. I collect brethren people who got ejected or tossed or dropped, people who got left in the ditch while the lawyers and scribes walked by on the other side. They must have done something wrong, right? They are, after all, lying in a ditch. And that doesn't happen to sensible, careful folk like us, now does it? Of course it does, every single day. I don't need another formal church us either. I see no comfort in moving on and proudly considering my old meeting us to just be them now. In setting up yet another formalized church group, there's enough of that around already. 
I just need various people from the church as a whole, and I have them, and they have me. We are us, and we assemble together any way we can, and it's good. Comparing Notes Something I did in my 20s that was extremely useful was to check out what all the other Christians were doing locally. Meet them for coffee, talk to them, that kind of thing. But that was scary. I didn't leap straight into it. I remember my sister wanting me to meet a Christian guy she was going to class with at Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario, and whose comments in class made her want to see us have a conversation. He went by Tex because his last name was Texiera. We met up in a common room at Queen's and hung out for a while. We liked each other. He was the guy I mentioned earlier who didn't believe in the rapture. This was my first conversation with a Christian who didn't believe in the rapture. So we talked about that a bit. I managed it, but it shook me. Would my worldview and approach to life and Christianity change utterly if I expected to perhaps live until I died or go through the apocalypse at ground zero? And then there was the Pentecostal girl who told me that if I hadn't received the second blessing, speaking in tongues or other supernatural manifestations of the Holy Spirit, that I wasn't really a Christian yet. That was something to experience too. Louisa says, I do recall vividly the very first time I took the bread and wine at a different church. It was traumatic. I sobbed for 20 minutes afterwards, as it was the most wayward, disobedient thing I had ever deliberately consciously done against my 40-year upbringing. As time went by, I saw that no group would be home for me ever again, as there was something I disagreed with everywhere, in part because I was still wearing my meeting glasses of looking for what is wrong, primarily, rather than looking for realness, which I now crave more than correctness. In similar fashion, Carol writes... For many months after leaving the Taylor Brethren, I did not feel comfortable even thinking about entering another church. This was due partly to an ingrained idea from my upbringing that anything other than the Lord's table, which actually meant the Taylorite table, was of the devil. Eventually I got past that notion, but I think to a point my upbringing has ruined me somewhat from completely relaxing into enjoyment of the worship activities of other Christians. Despite several forays into Baptist and other churches, I still always feel like an outsider looking in. And Melody says, Oh, I felt so guilty, like I was going to a bar. For a long time, I didn't even think that people who went to other churches were believers. I thought people in other churches were the people from Matthew 7.23 who claimed acquaintance with the Lord, but he didn't know them. For Will, it sounds like it was the Bible study that really made a lot of the difference for him. Hailsa decided we couldn't marry until we were 20, instead of right out of high school like they were all doing. I was 17 with raging hormones and hoping to marry as soon as I could, but you know what? Well, disgusted with the new rules, impatient and with no money saved up for a down payment on a house that I would need to get married, I finally threw up my hands and strayed out. Then, trying to live a right and feeling guilty about what I'd done, I went to the brothers and confessed. I was withdrawn from that night. The next months I lived at home with Mom while trying to live right, but unsuccessfully. I finally moved out and soon after met the girl that I would marry. Standing there waiting to get married was such a bittersweet moment, knowing that I was making a permanent decision about my future and the brethren and excited to be marrying a real sweetheart. My bad behaviour continued into my first years of marriage as I developed an addiction I did not realise the power of. My first child was born, a daughter. I knew God still loved me and had blessed me beyond my wildest imagination. I didn't deserve what he had blessed me with. His love for me brought me to my knees and soon I had a hunger for church that I dismissed years before. I found a church where the Bible study actually made sense. A pastor who was gracious and compassionate, a fellowship that gave me a home and a family. Next few years I sat in Bible study unlearning so much stuff and beginning to understand that my perception of God and the gospel was terribly screwed up. Through a study in Romans, I came to life. I battled through understanding my addiction, both in therapy and the 12 steps for recovery, and made leaps and bounds for progress. Three more children came along, a business, debt, stress, and eventually a divorce. Thankfully, and only by God's sweet grace, today, most of my debt is eliminated. I still have my business. The children are growing up beautifully, 
and I and my ex-wife are trying to mend the fences. I covet your prayers. If asked what carried me through, I would answer without a moment's hesitation, the grace and love of God, firstly, secondly, a very good woman, and thirdly, a determination that my family would never get a call from me, wasted and empty and in the ditch and needing their rescue. Life is a never-ending lesson. Hearing the Bible presented, with all of the obey every new rule that Mr. Hales comes up with agenda stripped away from it, was an eye-opener. A safer thing to do for me, I felt, was to watch any number of documentaries and read books about the Amish, Mennonites, Scientology, people leaving cults, and that kind of thing. I also met up with people who left Orthodox Judaism or Sikhism or Buddhism, extreme Catholicism. And the more of these people I spoke with, the more commonality I found, the more I liked them and sympathized with their struggles and saw that their lives were a whole lot like mine. And eventually on the internet, I connected with a large number of people from far stricter branches of the Brethren than I had ever known existed, compared what their rules were, how big a part isolationism and shunning played, that kind of thing, phoned people in other countries, ordered people's books, and discussed them with their authors online, saw how much more cultish some Plymouth Brethren groups depicted in these books got, felt lucky not to have been raised in one of those. And all of this really gave me perspective. And perspective is the very thing you don't have to begin with about your culture. And it's so valuable. I'm sure I could have traveled the world and seen Africa and India, but if I hadn't done things in quite the way I did them, I wouldn't have even started to scratch the surface of feeling like I could kind of see a bigger picture and where my own brethren culture fell within it a bit. In our culture, like most people's, Everything we did was normal, and everything other people did was weird. Worship style was a big one. Is worship style a race thing? When you worship, do you bow your head, or do you raise your hands? Is it happy clappy or smells and bells? Is it about jubilation and enthusiasm, or is it about quiet, mournful solemnity? I recently watched a documentary John Gorka recommended to me about gospel music called Rejoice and Shout. It helped me come up with some observations about the different kinds of worship music. A sharp dichotomy really got highlighted by every person who appeared in the documentary. They talked about the differences between the same two basic types of worship music in much the way I just did under the heading here. And they felt it was a race thing, at least originally. One thing I noticed was that where the people were coming from really seemed to determine what kind of music they connected well with. Also, it affected what the music they created themselves sounded like. Race doesn't ever explain everything, but watching this documentary made me feel that it was something worth considering, at least, as to how the two basic kinds of church were getting done. The film showed how African people who'd worked on the plantations as slaves and their children for a couple of generations afterward really identified with music about God giving you freedom. Because they had none. They'd always been treated like they didn't matter, like they weren't even really human beings at all. And the music created by them and their children spoke of a God who knew your name, who loved you, who was going to get involved in your life and make it work. A God who threw off chains and wanted to hear you raise your voice from mountaintops. He wanted you to wave at him, not bow your head low. One point made in the film was that this one specific image, the thought of one day going over the River Jordan to be free, resonated strongly with folk who had to literally get across one river or another, the Mississippi, the Ohio, to get to states where they could legally be free men and women. Even the Christmas carol, O Holy Night, written by white guys, has a verse talking about this from a white point of view. This verse is generally skipped. Truly he taught us to love one another His law is love And His gospel is peace Chains shall He break For the slave He is our brother And in His name All oppression shall cease 
in grateful chorus raise we let all within us praise his holy name fall on your knees oh hear the angel voices oh now gospel music created and enjoyed by black people was about not only having a voice, but dressing up proudly and going out to church, where you were encouraged to raise your voice up really loudly and demonstrate your connection to this God who made you because he liked it and wanted others to see how happy he'd made you. It was about letting go, speaking up and standing up and letting everything out. When the American Civil Rights Movement got going in the 50s and 60s, the character of the hymns at black churches only got more and more distinctive and strident. These hymns focused on freedom and on treating all human beings properly. The connection between the many gospel music groups whose songs were being sung in the black churches at that time and activists like Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was very clear to everyone. Black church music was the soundtrack, the fuel, that drove much of the civil rights movement. We shall overcome. By contrast, the more typically white hymns were frequently about self-control and very much about giving up freedom. Few hymns written during the civil rights movement era were sung in white churches until decades later. The hymnals were almost entirely filled with centuries-old hymns entirely written by white people. And they were sung in quiet, smooth, round, careful tones, with no room for an individual to put his or her stamp on the performance or alter phrasing and tempo at will. There was not a lot of smiling, and voices were not raised in howls, screams, yowls, or shouts of joy, as was certainly happening up the street. Nope. Quiet, smooth, round, careful. Because control was such a thing for white hymn writers, this is also where you saw many of the lyrics which promised to give all that control over to God. Also, having more in terms of material possessions, white middle-class church folks sang more frequently of being willing to theoretically sacrifice all of that for God, or at least of being willing to sacrifice the dream of upper-class wealth and remain simple, comfortably middle-class, church-going folk. I'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold I'd rather be his than a riches untold I'd rather have Jesus than houses or lands I'd rather be led by his nail-pierced hand than to be the king of a vast domain and be hailed in sin's dread sway. I'd rather have Jesus than anything this world affords today. Where the black churches rang with impassioned voices triumphing in the idea that God was going to give them freedom, the white churches were more likely to have hushed reverent hymns about laying aside one's own right to choose the path of one's own life. To live a quiet, grateful, abashed, decent life, quietly, for God. With quiet, decent houses, yards, lawns, cars, and children. And a very subdued color palette seen in church wear. Even if songs about giving control of one's life over to God were sometimes sung by black believers, often the focus was less on giving up riches, as in I'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold, 
and the idea was that God had made them delighted to loudly, joyfully live a better, more upright life, rather than said life being a silent, dutiful, bitter sacrificing of joy for God. The Staples singers were far more likely to sing respect yourself enough to live right rather than to refer to themselves as wretches or such a worm as I. Officially, there really were black churches and white ones. People like Elvis Presley used to sneak out of their white church bitterly, go up the street and sneak into the back of a black church to listen to the music. In a black church, each and every singer seemed to strive to stand out by being as individualistic as possible. In white churches, the thing to do seemed to be to embrace uniformity and unison to a far greater degree. Each singer was just another one of the uniformly white keys on the organ. There don't seem to be any white equivalents of Sister Rosetta Tharp playing down by the riverside in her flowered dress, hopping around in circles while laying down a solo on a Gibson SG electric guitar fit to make Chuck Berry weep with envy. YouTube that right now. first saw the Blues Brothers with James Brown singing a Southern Gospel sermon, I thought it was a hilarious exaggeration. But having seen some footage of the genuine article, I'm willing to believe that the movie scene is more or less an entirely accurate depiction, trampolines aside. I'm uncertain how exactly one would exaggerate the reality of black worship in the 50s and 60s. In the white churches, the color palettes of the outfits chosen by congregations, like the demeanor, tended to be comparatively narrow and subdued, with the black Southern Baptist and Pentecostal churches seeing more in the way of bright colors and attention-grabbing hats, ties, socks, accessories, and shoes. Where the white folks might sit silently, eyes shut, attention turned inward, one would be more likely in these other kinds of churches to find the attitude of, look at me, I'm worshiping, give a shout, running counter to the eyes closed, don't stare, quiet, I'm worshiping, attitude seen up the street. In the black churches, the attitude seemed frequently to be, listen to my singing and the pastor's sermon. We're going to make you feel what we feel when we come out to church. Baptists represent. The white middle class equivalent generally was, we trust you will listen to the sermon and pay attention to the instructive words of these hymns. We're going to invite you to think what we think when we come out to church. Where the whiter of the hymns would delve deeply into please solemnly, gratefully consider the idea that Jesus suffered so much pain because of me, the black ones tended more toward, I feel limitless ecstasy because of Jesus who freed me and knows my name. One thing was certain. There were churches with standing up, hands in the air, movement and vocal exclamations, and there were churches with people sitting extremely still in chairs silently. And it's still like that. In some cases, things in the entirely otherwise white-style churches have progressed to getting carefully to your feet, putting your hands in the air if you like, and swaying gently and serenely a bit, like palm fronds in a very gentle breeze. Still, no brightly colored outfits. Still, a lot of quiet reverence and songs about I surrender all. A compromise, I suppose. Segregated Still My folks aren't racists. But one time, my dad asked me to find, steal, him some good gospel music on the internet. And I knew exactly what to do. Stuff like on the Gaithers. I went on a downloading spree. I found compilation after compilation after historic and modern compilation of gospel music. And what I found is, it was all segregated. Utterly segregated. Still, to this day. There were Bill Monroe, the Carter family, and George Beverly Shea on the one hand, which he would really like, and there were the Edwin Hawkins singers, Sister Rosetta Tharp, and Aretha Franklin on the other, which would make him need to leave the room in horror at how irreverent and sensual and human-pleasingly hip-moving that all was. 
There was a specific mood he wanted help achieving, and it was restrained reverence, sorrow, and humble gratitude while humbly offering the sacrifice of joy and life ambitions, not joy in a freedom he was now celebrating. If there was any song written by a person of color, the face it was coming out of was invariably a white one with a smooth, round voice. But mainly, he'd want a hymn like this, emphasizing how Jesus' sufferings were our fault, about the crimes we had done, and what worms we were. Alas, and did my Savior bleed, and did my Sovereign die? Would he devote that sacred head for such a worm as I? At the cross, at the cross, where I first saw the light And the burdens of my heart rolled away It was there by faith I received my sight Now I am happy all the day Thy body slain, sweet Jesus thine And bathed in its own blood While the firm mark of wrath divine Thy soul in anguish stood At the cross, at the cross Where I first saw the light And the burdens of my heart rolled away It was there by faith I received my sight Now I am happy all the day Was it for crimes that I have done He groaned upon the tree Amazing pity, grace unknown And love beyond degree At the cross, at the cross Where I first saw the light And the burdens of my heart rolled away It was there by faith I received my sight Now I am happy all the day Well might the sun in darkness hide And shut his glories in When Christ the mighty maker died For man his creature's sin At the cross, at the cross Where I first saw the light burdens of my heart rolled away It was there by faith I received my sight Now I am happy all the day Thus might I hide my blushing face While his dear cross appears Dissolve my heart in thankfulness and melt my eyes to tears At the cross, at the cross Where I first saw the light And the burdens of my heart rolled away It was there by faith I received my sight Now I am happy all the day But drops of grief cannot repay The debt of love I owe Here, Lord, I give myself away, tis all that I can do. At the cross, at the cross, where I first saw the light, and the burdens of my heart rolled away. It was there by faith I received my sight, and now I am happy all the day. And now I am happy all the day. And here, sung in my characteristically smooth, round, white tones, I will attempt a song that my father would accept, even though the lyrics are more jubilant. One, two, one, two, three, four. I 
I wandered so aimless, life filled with sin. I wouldn't let my dear Savior in. Then Jesus came like a stranger in the night. And praise the Lord, I saw the light. I saw the light. I saw the light. No more darkness, no more night. Now I'm so happy, no sorrow inside. And praise the Lord, I saw the light. Just like a blind man, I wandered alone. Worries and fears I claimed for my own. Then, like the blind man, God gave back his sight. And praise the Lord, I saw the light. I saw the light. I saw the light. No more darkness, no more night. Now I'm so happy, no sorrow in sight. Praise the Lord, I saw the light. I was a fool to wander and stray. Straight is the gate and narrow the way. Now I have traded the wrong for the right. And praise the Lord, I saw the light. I saw the light, I saw the light, no more darkness, no more night. Now I'm so happy, no sorrow in sight. And praise the Lord, I saw the light. Praise the Lord, I saw the light.